Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Athens, the Retsina is still flowing. The party is continuing into the small hours. In Copenhagen, in Stockholm, in Oslo, in Reykjavik, the tears are flowing at the end of what has been an extraordinary festival of divine sport. Yes, this has been the week of the Rest is History World Cup of Gods. Tom Holland, have you enjoyed yourself? I've enjoyed it so much. Um, I think it, it truly has been a festival of divine sport. But I think that that I should mention for the benefit of those who may have absolutely no idea what you're going on about, <laughs> think you're hallucinating. Um, we This week on Twitter, we've been holding um, a World Cup of Gods where people vote for uh, in a knockout contest. Um, we are speaking in the aftermath of the final. Uh, Dominic's given some hefty clues there as to who made the final, but we, w- we won't announce the results. And what we'll do is we'll go through the um, the first 16. So we've got yeah. eight group matches there, and we'll talk about uh, each match, um, discuss the god that got knocked out, uh, and then we'll go through the quarterfinals, semifinals, to the final, discussing um, yeah. each god in turn. Uh, so lots of divine sport to look forward to. Um, but Dominic, first of all, I, th- I think we should dedicate this episode to <laughs> the person who made it all possible, who was your son, wasn't it? Yes, my nine-year-old son. He So we did a World Cup of British Prime Ministers, which was quite interesting in revealing what well, uh, Twitter users who listen to the rest of his history think about Britain's prime ministers anyway. And my son was thought this was quite a, a amusing but ultimately quite boring exercise and said, why don't you have a World Cup that people would actually care about, which is one of ancient gods? Uh, and so we did. Um, and it has been good fun. There's been a lot of controversy about who we... So my son's favourite god is Horus, and we never even picked Horus. Tom, yeah. what, would, what was our... Would you like to explain our rationale for the gods that we did and didn't pick? Yeah, we so said we didn't want to cause needless offence. So we didn't want to, to have Never. gods that people are still worshipping, uh, appearing in Twitter polls and getting knocked out by dog-headed <laughs> Prince Philip and so on. So um, so the, the, the specification was that only those gods were eligible that at some point over the course of history had ceased to be worshipped. So Odin, for example, is still worshipped by a few people, but... There was a point where nobody worshipped him. Right. So, so um, yes, yeah, so a temple to Odin has just opened in Iceland, I think. Um, but that's kind of very recent. Likewise, in Greece, there are shrines to the Olympians. But again, they're kind of late 20th century resurrection. Yeah. So um, basically, it's it's dead gods. Okay. Um, and I think that, that that's interesting for the, the number of gods that therefore didn't make it. So gods from India, from China, from um, Japan and... So places where there's more continuity, I suppose you could argue. Absolutely. So there's been a a lot of um, talk on the sports forums, obviously, about this this tournament. Um, And here is um, Ollie O'Connor with a kind of very interesting point that with with this draw, we're guaranteed an Olympian in the final. So he's dwelling on the way that um, the Greek gods basically dominate the the entry lists highlighting once again their stranglehold on the fan base over the past 600 years throw in an egyptian and norse god as the others and it begs the question how do we grow or diversify the game 
Um, and <laughs> again, John question. Midgley is his continued Eurocentricity will do nothing to calm the fans that the tournament is as ever being stitched up for the big money TV markets of ancient Greece <laughs> and the early Viking period. There's a serious answer to that, though, isn't there, Tom? That the way you would diversify the game the way, is by people no longer worshipping um, Asian gods or you yeah. know Chinese, Indian, whatever. I mean, the reason we probably didn't include them is not just because we're European, so we tend to be more interested in Europe. I mean, that's what we study at school, but also because you know having a tournament with Ishtar and Kibale and Loki and Dionysus, you're not going to offend anybody because they're all defunct. They've all been superseded by monotheism, yes, which is yes. not the case of some of these others, presumably. I mean, the interesting and serious point to be made here is the way that Christianity and Islam have operated as kind of neutron bombs, <laughs> incinerating gods. So it's it's Europe, the Near East, where Christianity and Islam have have really established themselves. There is no place for other gods, and so they've all gone. Although Tom, um, isn't it? Might we not discuss this during the podcast that that a lot of these gods actually, or at least some of them, have in various ways been incorporated. Well, yes. It. And yes. that's what's actually I found fascinating about this sort of reading up on all the gods is the extent to which they some of them blend into each other and then they all ultimately flow into what we think of as their as the as the 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 invaders that destroyed them. Well, so there are two particularly controversial um participants in the last 16. Um Moloch <laughs> and right. Bridget, both yeah. of whom may not even have been gods. Yeah, may um, not have existed, whereas, of course, all the others did exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, let's let's not get into the theological. <laughs> but, yeah. So Moloch, Moloch and Bridget were both included. I, I think you would agree that there was some opposition from you to my pressing for them. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't mind Moloch because I liked the child eating. Bridget, I just thought, I'd frankly, I mean, I'd never heard of Bridget. So I was very scornful. And in fact, there were a few... On people on Twitter who weighed in on Bridget and were like, "What? Why have you picked somebody nobody's ever heard of?" But one for the Irish fans. One for the Irish fans, though. They there was some debate about. I mean, even my wife, who is Irish, said, "Who the hell is Bridget?" Right. Well, um, we'll come to Bridget and and we'll find why 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 I think yeah, that she was a yes, worthwhile yeah. candidate. But should we come to the first match? Yes. Of the of of, of the group stages, which was so, Zeus against Moloch. Uh, well, Moloch is a great god i think because he's got he's everything you want from a god he's he, what is he he's mentioned in leviticus he's canaanite so phoenician um and he's involved with child sacrifice so he sort of ticks the boxes of what you assume a generic ancient god will be but he may not even have existed at all am i right tom he may just be a That's complete right. so so very so, so moloch essentially seems to have been the ritual of child sacrifice yeah and so therefore it is contested whether what is being described in, in the Old Testament is a god or a ritual, because basically the, the Old Testament is the only evidence that we have for it. So this is like, so they, um, have, they have what, they're tofets, tofets or whatever they're called, where they, there are these altars where you sacrifice children, is that right? Well, again, which is, I think only mentioned it in the Old Testament, and it's, it seems to be a shrine um, in a place called Gehenna, which is a valley near Jerusalem, where we're told child sacrifice happens. Yeah. Um, but again, it may, you know, it may be a more kind of general description for a, a, a place where, where child are offered up to a God. What's I found fascinating reading about this is, am I right in thinking that these may be, these sacrifices may actually have been made to the, to the God of Judaism, to, 
to Yahweh. So, for example, yeah. that Abraham and Isaac, that that story may be a, a sort of remembered version of the yeah. sacrifices that were happening. So, so the question is, if 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 Moloch was not a god, yeah. if it's a description of a sacrifice, what to what god were these children being sacrificed? Um, there's a passage in Jeremiah where he says that it's to, to Baal, who is the great god of the Canaanites, um, kind of king of the Canaanite gods. I is, wanted is, Baal in the tournament, but I you know you did. Him out. I know you did. But we're discussing Baal under under the rubric of Moloch. Yeah, but I've got, um, I've got Baal's got a got a name check. Uh, Baal, of course, is you know the great rival of of Yahweh, the the the, the god of the Jews becomes the god of the Christians as well. Um, but what you also get in Jeremiah is kind of first person commentary from Yahweh insisting that he did not demand child sacrifice. Oh, right. Yeah, and there's a possibility that he's slightly protesting too much. <laughs> right, because he's a strong thing on. to say he, about God, Tom. Uh, as, you know, he's. So Jeremiah nineteen five something. This is something I did not command or mention, nor did it even enter my mind. Right? <laughs> you think? Well, okay. There's something um, very Boris Johnson about that, uh, slightly, isn't there? <laughs> slightly, slightly. So, and, and of course, so, so then, if if actually the Old Testament bears witness to the kind of buried memories of these rituals, and I think yeah. that there's quite a lot of evidence that. Um, aspects of cultic worship that are condemned by the hebrew prophets may actually have been applied you know th th these were cultic practices associated with a figure of yahweh so they're, they're cleaning kind of up their cleaning own religion up. yeah S slightly yes i think so and, and moloch has become a, a symbol of that to some extent well sacrificing a child is obviously for us because we're the heirs of of that yeah, that that tradition, that moral heritage, absolutely repellent. I mean, we we view it as as highly, you know, what the most disgusting thing that you can we do. do. Um, but there's a, you know, there, there there is evidence. I think, as you said, with with um, the sacrifice of you know the, uh, Abraham being asked to sacrifice Isaac, and then of course shadowing it, the the way in which there's a sense that God in the Christian tradition is sacrificing His Son, or there's some. So there are kind of echoes, perhaps, of the the, the relationship of father and a son, um, and the son being sacrificed that perhaps goes back to this. I mean, obviously, these are very contested yeah. <laughs> issues and very deep waters. Um, but the other thing, I think, the other thing, moving away from the the purely biblical, is that there is evidence as well in for, for this happening from classical authors right and is this in carthage are you, are you moving on to carthage now well, well there's there's evidence from a guy called philo of biblos who is writing in the first century ad who who says that um basically the people of phoenicia would do this that the kings would sacrifice their children and they would do it as not because they wanted to get rid of their children but, but precisely the opposite the children are the most precious thing to them and so therefore that is what you offer to the gods in in a desperate situation because yeah. only if you offer something that's absolutely precious to you. There's a great scene of this in have you ever read uh, Flaubert's novel Salambo? Yes. Yes. Um where there's a huge scene isn't there where they um they sacrifice all the children in the Punic War they're fighting uh, and it's not the Punic War is it they're fighting some mercenaries. Yes they're fighting the mercenaries after the first Punic War. Uh and isn't Hannibal is spared Hamilcar sends another child instead of Hannibal or something and Hannibal is spared so that he's going to fight he Clearly, the Romans later yes, on. Yes, and then anyway. he swears his oath. Yeah, and and so there was a lot, kind of a, an assumption that this was Roman propaganda, and and perhaps that it wasn't true. But they have, you know, the, there is archaeological evidence for it. They have found um, kind of cult centres where there's evidence for child sacrifice, and there's a, a brilliantly creepy um, 
illustration from a, 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 a cemetery, a kind of shattered tower in a se- Punic cemetery, um, Phoenician cemetery, Carthaginian cemetery on the coast of Spain, um, where there's <laughs> a kind of a baby in a bowl being oh, he- being offered to this kind of two headed monster uh, who's holding a pig. So right. What's the pig? What's the pig gonna? Where's the pig gonna come I in? I don't know. It's all. I, I mean, that's that's the other thing. There's so much we don't know, right. and you, it's all just incredibly weird and very. I think very sinister. So perhaps we should put that up. Um, yeah. I think maybe I think, when, uh, when maybe when when we link to this uh, on Twitter or something, we could put a picture of that of that thing because it's very very creepy. Um, and so I think that. Um, I'm not surprised that Moloch got knocked out. Yeah, I was about to say he's, Moloch got knocked out. Pretty, pretty, pretty horrible. Um, but he he also has a starring role in uh, Paradise Lost. Um, Horrid Milton king, Lightson. besmeared with the yeah. blood of human sacrifice and parents' tears. Milton's not messing around, is he? No, no. And I think that does kind of haunt the imagination still. So I it, think that even yeah. though Moloch may not even have existed, I think that he deserved his place. But I, I wasn't surprised to see him go out so let's move on to another um another another four at the first hurdle chippy totek chippy totek was up against odin now chippy totek was another of yours you were very keen on chippy yeah uh he's a he's a colorful character there's a lot of sacrifice going on with him he's aztec he's from what the 14th 15th century um tell us about chippy totek tom um, well, we we discussed him briefly in the um, episode with Camilla Townsend on the on the Aztecs. Um, and I mentioned there how uh, years ago there was an exhibition um, on the Aztecs in the Royal Academy, and there was a statue of Chippy Totec there, and he he looked rather adorable because um, <laughs> he he had kind of bubbles all over him. Yeah, so he looked like a children's character. Yeah, you know, a lovable cartoon character. It's like a Michelin man almost. Yes, a little yes, a bit but, more, but, more bubbly than that. Yes, yes. Um, Kind of, cho- you know, the inside of an arrow, kind of yeah. chocolate bar, um, uh, little yeah. bubbles of chocolate. Um, Maltesers, teasers. Yes. But actually what these bubbles are, are the, the deposits of fat um, of the inside of a flayed skin. Lovely. Uh, and Chippy Totec um, is known as, as the flayed one, because what he does is he uh, skins himself. And by doing that, uh, he is giving food to humanity. So he's the so god of fertility and agriculture. His festival is in the spring. Um, it's all about uh, the way that the um, that the earth gives forth new life from death and all those kind of rituals. But it's done in a very, very <laughs> terrifying, literal yeah. way because increasingly, um, over the, and, and we heard again that from Camilla Townsend that um, as the Aztecs Aztec power grows and grows, so the rites of sacrifice grew and grew. And um, prisoners are skinned, and the priests of Chippy Totec then wear these skins for for twenty days. They must have stunk. They must have. I mean, the stench, horrible. Tom. I mean, but and, and after twenty days, they put them in pots and let them rot away. And these pots have kind of special seals, so they they don't smell. I wonder whether this so Chippy Totec I discovered from my reading was also associated with pimples, rashes, and eye infections. And I wonder whether that was because, I mean, if you go around wearing somebody else's skin for 20 days, you're going to develop. I mean, your own skin will be in a poor condition, presumably afterwards. I I guess that that would be part of it. But I think also what we see with all these gods, and it's obviously a crucial part of what makes them worthwhile contenders in the World Cup, is that they they can do offence and defence. 
that right. that that they they can do you they can do you good and they can do you evil. Yeah, and they're a compound of often of what seems to us opposites. And so, absolutely, Chippy um, provides people with the food that they need to survive. But he give you a bad eye infection. He will give you all spots or something. Yeah, straight. Um, I mean, that's a, such an incredibly banal detail. Um, I'm, I'm amazed that I mean to think of the god of eye infections. <laughs> well, wouldn't strike me as an obvious. You know, I, I see the Aztecs in a very different light now that I uh, now that I know that. But there's also the sense, uh, you know, the deeper sense that, and and we talked about how the beasts of Chippy um, like to stab their penises with thorns. Of course, uh, yeah. and I don't think it's an episode of, of the rest of the story unless well, we've got a, we're, we're talking got, about we've got some mutilation, mutilation coming up later. Yeah. Actually, yeah, we've got quite a lot of genital <laughs> mutilation, but let's get in there early. Um, and so the Aztecs did have. They had the feeling that unless you were offering blood to the gods, um, unless the gods were, were, were drinking it, then darkness would threaten the whole world. Yeah. So, and that's kind of common across most of these ancient yeah. religions, right? I mean, that's yeah. that's it's clearly a universal human belief. We're probably unusual in not believing. I mean, that. I think I think well, I suppose it, but but even in the Christian tradition, yeah, well, um, you know, drink this blood. Yes, um, and Jesus so, shedding his blood for us. And all yeah, that so stuff, so yeah. so the idea of divine blood is is a, a constant, and again, something I think that we'll see running throughout throughout right. this contest. Well, Chippy, he for for a very colourful, exotic god. Um, if that doesn't sound too sort of orientalizing, um, he performed very poorly. I thought. I thought well, he, he was up give... against Odin, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. But even so, so I, I thought the flayed one, the skin, and all that. I thought that would. Yeah, win him a few brownie points, but 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 possibly doesn't have cut through. Clearly not. I mean, and this not. is kind of why the gods, you know, the, the the major gods are talking about setting up a super league. We right. just got to hope that it that yeah. they don't go through with that because Chippy I think did it his is best, important. but he just didn't. He just didn't resonate with. Yeah, he's this Keir Starmer of of, of Aztec gods. I, I, I really don't think that Chippy Totec and Keir Starmer are <laughs> a natural well. fit. But I think you know, as Ollie O'Connor said, there's it's important to grow and diversify the game. Yeah, and. Uh, and a you know a, a World Cup of gods in which you have Aztecs no, got, seriously Aztec competing has got to be. It's got I mean, to be, I would have a, had. It's Hernan, got to be a more exciting cup. I wanted to have Hernan Cortez, um, <laughs> but we know that he wasn't a god. No, <laughs> well, I know, but I mean, <laughs> there was some doubt at some point, wasn't there? Anyway, let's move on. Next god, um, are we going to do? Should we do Ishtar next? We've got yes, Mithras against Ishtar. Um, so this was a nice one because this was a, an all Asian clash, really, wasn't it? Um, well, we might discuss that, uh, but uh, wh- whether Mithras really is a, a, a Persian god. Yes, um, okay. But Ishtar is definitely a Mesopotamian god. So, are you, are you a fan of Ishtar? Uh, I actually wasn't. wasn't bothered about Ishtar, but once I read up on Ishtar, I thought she was very interesting. So she's also known as Inanna. Yeah. Inanna, right? And she's, she's Sumerian, so incredibly old, much older than most of these gods. And again, has this huge continuity. So I'm not right in thinking that people think that Ishtar, she's a goddess of love, that she inspired Aphrodite, that she's a kind of yeah. forerunner for Aphrodite. Well, you all know yeah. more about this than me, Tom. I don't know why I'm even talking. Well, she, so, so Inanna is the goddess of, the patron goddess of, of Uruk, which is one of the very earliest cities, yeah. perhaps the earliest city. Um, she then becomes the patron of, of, uh, Sargon of Akkad, who is, Kind of conventionally thought of as the first imperialist, the first um, yeah. man to, to carve out an empire, and he has a, a kind of Moses and the Bulrushes story. So he gets, um, you know, rather like Moses is, he gets cast out, um, gets rescued, 
um, works as a gardener. <laughs> as you do. <laughs> as you do. And then the Ishtar falls in love with him and raises him up to become the greatest king in the world. Um, and so uh, that kind of basically makes her reputation as well. Um, and and her, the worship of her goes right the way through to Assyria. She's a great kind of patron of the Assyrian kings and patron of the Babylonian kings. And again, we you know we talked about Chippy being the, the god of the harvest and of zits um, in a rather similar way. Um, Ishtar is a, a war goddess. So in, yeah. that's the role that she plays as the patron of Assyria, this terrifying militaristic empire. But she's also the goddess of love. That's an interesting thing, isn't it, with a lot of these gods, that they're, they... Obviously, their meaning changes over time, but they they take on different roles, don't they? I mean, we see this much later on with the Greek gods and goddesses that they they sort of almost they're almost imperialists in themselves, and they sort of accumulate they territory, absorb stuff. Yeah, yeah. they do. They, yeah, and so, and so um, Ishtar is the goddess of love. She she kind of casts this erotic spell over Uruk, so Uruk is cast as. Um, I suppose really it's the first it's the first metropolis to serve the role that cities have have have, have always played since, which is as a, as a place where people come to experience uh, the, the erotic in the way that they might not do in okay. villages or out in the fields. Yeah. Um, and so again, what the followers of Ishtar, you get this kind of haze of myth scholars debate whether whether it's real or not but there's for a long time it's believed that um ishtar was the patroness of sacred prostitution i think it's not now not widely thought that that happened but um you also get her her priests are cross-dressing um men sleeping yeah. with men uh, all, all this kind of stuff uh, reports of copulation in the streets um and are these exaggerated, do you think, or are they, are they real? I don't know, but there's a kind of sense of a kind of slight, you know, a gay pride parade quality to her, her <laughs> worship, right. um, which I think is, I mean, you know, the sexual standards are, are completely different to ours. Yeah. But at the same time, the sense that um, you can obviously go beyond the, the bounds of the normal. And if you're a man, you can dress as a woman or yeah. sleep with another man or whatever is given license by, by Ishtar. And that's the kind of the locus of her power. She's not the only god that does that, right? I mean, we're going to come across no, yeah, other gods we'll soon. More as well. So there's, uh, there's always a role of a god who's a kind of, who gives you a license. You know, you, when you associate yourself with this god or when you they have a festival or something, all the traditional rules are suspended and you can kind of crack on and do whatever you like. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and that's, that's all part of the fun. And Ishtar is a goddess who pushes at the limits so there's a kind of famous story that gets told several times including in, in Gilgamesh the famous epic but the, the core of the story is, is that um she has a sister who's the, the goddess of the dead right and Ishtar goes down essentially because she wants to annex you know you're talking about how gods annex things Ishtar basically wants to kind of take over the realm of the dead as well as the, the, the realm of the living and she goes through seven gates and at each gate she discards you know, some jewelry clothing attributes of her power she ends up basically naked and powerless and is struck down dead everybody on earth loses their libido so it's a kind of wow. anti-viagra right. yeah. nobody nobody can perform enki the the, the wise god creates <laughs> these kind of gender fluid rescuers who go down and, and bring her back um she comes back she finds everyone is weeping um except for her husband um Dumazid, who 
He's, kind of, he's, ha- he's kind of hanging out in the garden and he right. doesn't really care. So Ishtar's incredibly cross about that, kills him, sends him down to the underworld in her place, regrets it, tries to get him back. And there's a kind of Persephone story whereby he comes back for six months to, to be with her. Interesting. Yeah. And that's another theme back. that comes up again and yeah. again in these God stories, isn't it? Yeah. Death and rebirth or the fertility and, and sort of, I mean, that's obviously associated with the seasons and all that sort of thing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and and um, one last thing on on Ishtar is that although her worship fades away um, in in the Christian and the Muslim period in the Near East, um, she has a brother called Shamash who is the god of the sun. And I went to um, a place called Lalish in northern Iraq, which is yeah. holy to the Yazidis. It's kind of a religious minority, and it's very syncretic faith. The kind of elements of Judaism and Islam and Christianity and Zoroastrianism all kind of there, but they have a a, a, a room, a chamber that is sacred to a, a, a holy man called Sheikh Shams. And he is, is in some way associated with the sun. And so there are scholars who think that this might be a living link to Shamash and therefore to Ishtar because Shamash is the brother of oh, Ishtar. Nice. So it's, so I don't think that disqualifies Ishtar because we're talking about Shamash rather than Ishtar, but, but, but you know, there is this perhaps there are elements that are still living alive. elements yeah. still That's there nice. in Northern Iraq, which is kind of wonderful. Simone for. de Beauvoir was a big fan of Ishtar. In the second sex, she says that uh, Ishtar has been written out of history by patriarchal men and that feminists should champion Ishtar. And it's her case is proven by the fact that Mithras, well, the, I mean, the, I god, of, say, the god of the Roman soldiery, um, beat her. It's a classic yeah. patriarchal manoeuvre. And I think on that note, we should, we should go for a break, shouldn't we? Uh, we probably should, actually. We're, we're, I think we're talking too much, Tom. Um, yes. But when we come back after the break, we'll talk less and we'll move more quickly through our gods. See you in a minute. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Caddy Kaye, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people (laughs) will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to The Rest is History. Uh, Tom Holland and I are discussing the World Cup of Gods. We've talked about Moloch, Chipitotek and Ishtar. And now Tom, Bridget. So Bridget was a controversial choice. Irish, some would say not a god. Um, explain yourself. Okay, so Bridget is generally held up as an example of a god who becomes a saint. So Saint Bridget of Kildare, one of the great the great saints of the Irish tradition. Yeah. Um, and so people have debated whether Bridget, Saint Bridget existed and essentially whether when Catholics um, pay their respects to Saint Bridget, they're actually paying respect to a pagan god. And because did this happen a lot in early Christianity? That they absorbed local cults and stuff as a sort of, well, as a sort of, you know, branding takeover kind of. Well, thing. that's 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 been a kind of popular accusation against the Catholic cult of saints since at least the time of Hume, who makes exactly that point. Um, and the evidence for for Bridget having been a god, there are um, so there's a god, the goddess of Yorkshire, Brigantia. Yes. So we know that she's worshipped in, in Britain. There's a, a sculpture found in, in Dumfries with an inscription saying that she's called Brigantia. And so um, it's been popularly thought that Brigantia and, and Bridget, you know, similar names, maybe the same person. Um, and also there is um, in the ninth century in Ireland, there is um, uh, Cormac's glossary, it's called, uh, refers to Bridget being a, a goddess. Um, and she's part of this kind of pantheon of the Irish gods that you know has faded by the ninth century. And she's so that's a, a, so, so, so that's the basis for thinking that. And she's a poet. She's a healer. And she's a poet, smith. She's, is that right? That's she's right. A yes. Tripartite god. She, that's that's what oh, um, goddess, that's right. what Cormac's glossary says. Yeah, but there is um, an alternative way of seeing it, which is to say that actually uh, the evidence for for Saint Bridget is much better than there having been. Um, a, a goddess called Bridget, and that perhaps actually it's the other way round, that perhaps you have a, a, a saint who mutates into a goddess so that people come to think that, the, you know, Irish chroniclers come to think that this goddess had existed. And the reason for thinking this is put forward in a, a very interesting paper by um, a scholar called Lisa Battelle, and you can read it online, so it's, it's available, well worth reading. Uh, and her argument is that Bridget of Kildare did exist, um, that she uh, performed all kinds, was believed to have performed all kinds of miracles, that she came from a very humble background. She was the daughter of a slave. Um, and yet she ends up a, a very powerful figure that kind of, you know, an abbess, the friend of, 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 of abbots, um, patron of kings. And so there is a, a challenge in working out how to portray her power. Yeah. So there are stories that kind of wonderful stories that are told of her that she she hung her cloak on a sunbeam, that she turned water into beer. I mean, brilliant right. stuff. And you can see why she's you know, kind of popular in a Ireland. Sunbeam, yeah, it's a-, a wonderful, wonderful <laughs> detail. Um, but the way to this is a period where women do not have power. Yeah, you know, there are, and the only example of women exercising power is in the dimension of the supernatural, and so bridge. Saint Bridget comes to be associated with the attributes of of gods. So the power that she exercises over the landscape, over the animals, over the earth and the sun and the rain, these are powers that kind of derive from the fading pagan traditions. So she's a saint at the same time as there are pagan... So Ireland is not yet fully Christianized. Is that basically the argument? Yeah, and and she absorbs elements that are associated with goddesses because these are the only way that christian writers can express the power of this woman 
Because otherwise, the idea that a woman could have power, spiritual power, is so strange that there is no other way of 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 um, demonstrating it. So I think that that's a, a fascinating story. It's a good story, but it wasn't convincing to the, to the Twitter arty. No, clearly. it wasn't. No. Because no. she performed very – I mean, she was up against Apollo, and Apollo is kind of the Greek god's Greek god. But even so, she performed quite poorly, didn't she, I thought? I mean, she, did she even get 30% of the vote? I don't think she did, no. Oh, Tom. No. Tom. So, so a shame. So she got knocked out. But I, yeah. think, but I thought, I mean, that's an interesting story, isn't it? It I is an interesting story. It, it, it is. And you claimed when you selected her that uh, there would be an interesting story. And there has been. So you've been vindicated, <laughs> even <laughs> if no one voted for it. <laughs> All right. Who have we got up next? Uh, we've got Augustus. Augustus Caesar. Now, this is an interesting one because he quite patently is a man. I mean, there's... <laughs> <laughs> And you know, and we are going to do a whole podcast, I hope, on Augustus because I think he's clearly one of the two or three, you know, most important, most effective, most influential political leaders in human history. Yeah, the most in European history, I would say. The most in European history. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure that's probably true. I mean, it's hard to think of anyone who would conceivably rival him, actually. Um, but so, at what point is he deified? He's deified after his death, right? He's not deified at the in his lifetime or not fully deified is that right well he's worshipped as god outside rome but then he okay. has he has his in the funeral. east i suppose no doubt in yeah so of- in, in AD 14 he dies his his body is taken back to rome and they stage this incredible kind of pyrotechnical extravaganza with flames and i mean equivalent yeah. to fire. they don't have so, so for but, people I mean, who don't know have- he is octavian he is the adopted heir of julius caesar who he- is god yeah, who was had been deified, and so one of the names he has, he he, he becomes his one of his. You know, it, this isn't a title; it's his name. It's son of a god. Yeah. Um. So he's defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra. He's become the first emperor of Rome and did, created this new structure, and then he is deified. And that that sort of he's picking up that tradition from Julius Caesar, but then he's passing that on to all subsequent emperors. That they're all deified, aren't they? Unless they're no, sort of driven no. out in. No, oh, right. they're, okay, they're, no not. they're not. They're not. Um, so Tiberius' son isn't, Caligula obviously isn't, Claudius is, Nero isn't. Um, and, and so it basically depends whether, you know, whether, whether you measure up or not. Um, but well, Augustus, if you're a successful emperor, you're deified then. But put it that way. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. But, but, but Augustus is the kind of the archetype of the great emperor and therefore the archetype of an emperor who becomes deified. So his very name, Augustus, essentially, it, it signifies someone who's midway between earth and heaven. So the, the 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 sense that he is a supernatural figure, a more than divine, a more than human figure, is there right the way from the time? Actually, I mean, basically from the moment that Julius Caesar is deified, because Augustus is his, his adopted son, and that therefore, in the opinion of the Romans, is his son. He has this quality of the divine about him. The name Augustus gives him a further quality, and by the the, the final year of his life, you know, he's starting to fall ill. But there are all these kind of portents, rumours around him showing that he's going to go to the heavens. And when he at his funeral, um, a senator says that he has seen his spirit rising up to the sky and that's enough. So he gets enshrined as a god. And in the the, the first century AD, this is by miles the fastest spreading cult. Um, it's, pro- it's probably the fastest spreading cult across a broader range that, that history had ever seen. Because everywhere in the Roman Empire, this cult is being instituted. And what's so fascinating about this, though, Tom? And what I think makes this, in some ways, a more fa- a more fascinating story than almost any other of the contenders, is that it makes us rethink. You know, in the sort of twenty first century, we think of mortal and immortal as two completely separate categories, don't we? The yeah. natural and supernatural, God and human, 
And, you know, most people who are atheists who are listening to this podcast will think, well, people in the past were very backward and they thought that there were strange creatures in the sky and, and all this sort of stuff. But the Augustus's deification suggests a much more complicated relationship between mortal and immortal. Because, of course, people didn't think that, I mean, they didn't think he had powers. You know, the people who had worked with him, who had been his sort of civil servants, who had trudged in with the paperwork every morning and discussed tax policies, knew that he didn't, you know, they didn't think of him as God in the same, as a sort of Marvel superhero film no. sense of the gods, did they? It's a much no. more complicated and nuanced picture but, but than that. It's he, about authority he, and he, about tradition and all this sort of stuff, right? But I think it's also gratitude. For, because Rome has been ravaged by civil war and Augustus essentially is the man who brings peace. So Augustus is, you know, he's the son of a god. He um, he brings peace to a ravaged world. Um, he, his, he, the people who support him proclaim this as, and we have inscription saying it, that it's euangelia, so good news. Uh, right. Oh, interesting. Evangel. Yeah, very interesting, yeah. Um, and then when he dies, he, he goes to heaven and sits at the right hand of his divine father. Um, so there's nothing odd about that. It, the people yeah. of, of of the Roman Empire take for granted that great people will, you know, can become gods. Lurking behind this, of course, is another cult that emerges in the first century of a, a son of a god who is a prince of yeah. peace who ascends to heaven and sits at the right hand of his father. Yes. What What's shocking about the deification of Jesus isn't isn't the fact that a, a mortal is becoming immortal, but that. A slave is doing someone who suffers. So it's a mortal who's a nobody rather yes. than a mortal. And so there's a sense a, yeah. in which, um, so Paul, what St. Paul, when he goes to Galatia, you know, he writes his letter to the Galatians. Galatians seems to have been a particular cult center for Augustus. A lot of, of in, um, what we know about Augustus, his, his autobiography, the, the, the accounts of that come from Galatia. And so there's a sense, I think, in which, um, Paul certainly is very aware of the fact that the, 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 the euangelion, the gospel, the good news that he's bringing, is a parody of the cult of Augustus. But also, before we move on, isn't isn't Augustus's cult like well, like Julius Caesar's cult? They're clearly picking up, aren't they, on the sort of Hellenistic? So Alexander the Great had been a god. Philip II yeah. of Macedon, Alexander's father, had had godlike attributes. The Ptolemies in Egypt had been worshipped as gods, as pharaohs had, and that the Romans are basically picking up as their as their empires expanded and they've moved into the Eastern Mediterranean. Aren't they picking up a lot of that sort of stuff and then transporting it back to Rome in place of the sort of slightly more Republican kind of Cato-ish values that they'd had before that? I think um, part of the appeal of the cult is that different people, different peoples, different traditions can project their cultural understandings onto the figure of of this deified emperor. Yeah. Um, so I think I think I think that's very interesting. I think Augustus was, you know, absolutely deserved his presence in the in this World Cup, but. Again, he, he crashed out, didn't he? He, he crashed did out to very Athena, poorly, very in poorly. Athena, the number one seed. I think so it was always going to be a, a, a lot of match the fans him. just couldn't see past the fact that he had once been a man. Yeah, and um, yeah. yeah. Now let's. Where, who are we going to do next? Um, are uh, we going to do? Uh, we've got Lo- Loki Lo- against Anubis. So this and- is the big shock, and I, I still think. I mean, I voted for Anubis. I wanted Anubis. I'm not going to lie. I wanted Anubis to win because of my own association with him at uh, school when I made my Anubis mask i was very proud of it however loki is a very interesting god and he probably should have gone further in the tournament Surprised do you not think he lost it's a, it's a sort of anti-tom hiddleston though isn't it anti-marvel comics backlash i think do you think because i think that that 
Odin and, and Loki are from, you know, they, they're well known, perhaps better known than any other god at the moment because of that. Yeah. Marvel dimension. I think maybe people are a bit bored of him because he's ubiquitous. Maybe. And, you know, there's about to be a Loki film or TV series or something. And I think he's just everywhere and there's trailers for it all the time. And it's a kind of fascinating example of the way in which this, in a sense, is still a living tradition. <laughs> well, I suppose so. Well, because, you know, notoriously what we know about the, the gods of the Vikings and, and is, is mediated through writers who are Christian by the time they're yeah, Icelandic writers. And so, and, yeah. and so therefore the issue is always mm, how Christianized has this been or are these authentic traditions? Um, and in a set, so it's always being rewritten, rewritten, rewritten. Uh, and the, the, their kind of iteration in the Marvel comics is just another example yeah, of that. I suppose that's true. Well, anyway, let's Loki. So he's a trickster. He, a lot of people will know that he's the father of hell and Fenrir, the wolf and Jormungand, the, the serpent. That he's also bizarrely the father of, uh, Sleepnir, is it? The eight-legged oh, the horse. The eight-legged horse of Odin. Yes. Loki is impregnated. He is yes. impregnated himself yeah, and gives guy. birth to this this eight-legged horse. I mean, that's a very peculiar, <laughs> even by the standards of ancient gods. That's a, that's a strange carry-on, isn't it? And then, of course, famously, he tricks Hod into... The blind brother of Balder. Of Balder and shooting Balder, the god who everybody loves. And then he's punished for that, isn't he? He's, there's a serpent drip venom into his face. Is that it? Or yeah, well, there's an intermediate stage because he... Um, the God of the Underworld says that Balder can come back if it's shown that everyone is weeping for him and everyone across creation weeps for him, except for a giantess. And That's the gods right, ask, yes. why are you not weeping? And he says, oh, the giantess says, oh, I don't care. Not interested. <laughs> it's like the person who refuses to go to Diana's funeral or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that turns out to be Loki. And so oh, yes, Loki then disguise. they seize him. They seize him and, and chain him down and put a serpent that drips poison on his head. So what's all this, Tom? So this is a very unusual figure because most of the gods we've talked about are people who were, you know, you'd associate themselves, you'd associate yourself with their cult because there was something admirable about the god or or they, they incarnated some value, you know, love or fertility or whatever. But he's a pretty malignant presence, isn't he? I mean, he's just, isn't he? I suppose he is fun. I mean, he's in the kids' stories. So, yeah. you know, our house is full of creaking with the weight of kind of Norse myths and stuff. And he's always in them. I mean, when he's not in them, they're very boring. It's Thor yeah. hitting a giant with a hammer. And sometimes um, sometimes he's helping Thor out, isn't he? Yes, he is. Sometimes Thor is an absolute fool. And, and Loki's there to, to... I mean, he's kind of divine Odysseus, basically. Yes. Yeah. And people Which like, is, you know... Well, that's why the, the, Hiddleston, the Hiddleston portrayal, I mean, he's much more interesting than Thor in the Marvel comics. Yes, films. You know, Thor is just a sort of beefcake, and 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 Hiddleston is playing this sort of charismatic, sort of smirking, clever person. Yeah, I mean, so that makes it weird that he did crash out, actually. Um, but I, again, I think that's a but sort people of love psych- dogs. I mean, people like tricksters, <laughs> but they like dogs even more. Well, and so and they're not quite enough, as we found out later. Well, in we'll the, come in to the that. Tournament. Yes, the big controversy of the tournament, but we'll save that. Um, okay, so, so that was Loki gone. Um, yeah. and then we have Kibale. Right. Yeah. Um, Who, again, one of your choices. Um, yes. Now, I was mystified by this choice until I did some research and found out about the priests or the associates of Kibale. And- but did you find out how old she is? Very so old. About how old Ishtar is. Kibale is older. Is Kibale is older? Well, maybe. I, I, 
diff- but but it's possible that she goes all the way back to Chatelhayok. In so, so Kibale is a Phrygian god in Anatolia, what's now so Turkey. Turkey, yeah. Um, but she, it is thought that her cult ultimately has its origins in a, a, the figure of a mother goddess who is associated with these kind of very very fat women. Yeah, um, found at Chatelhayok, which is this kind of because the, the statues city. are very very fat, aren't they? Of her, yeah. So it's kind of 6,000 BC, something like that. And considering that, her, you know, she's worshipped right the way up to kind of 500 AD. She, yeah. if if that's the case, then she is the deity that has been worshipped longer than any other. So she's been worshipped almost. So much longer than, say, you know, the, the Jewish three ta- Three or, times longer than Jesus so far. Yes. Which is extraordinary when you think of it. Um, yeah. So, so we talked about Akhenaten and Tutankhamun. They are closer to us than... Than they wow, are the, than the, the first worshippers of Kivale. That so I think she deserves, you know, absolute veteran. And she's a sort of she's a mother goddess. But the, what's interesting, the Romans adopted her, did they? During the Punic War, they brought some stone to Rome. Yeah, so they get told. So, so they're fighting the war against Hannibal, and they get told to bring the, the cult of Kivale to Rome. Um, and the ship gets stuck, and a, a noble Roman virgin helps pull it up. And there's a famous painting by Mantegna illustrating that in the National Gallery. Presumably, not single handed. I mean, yeah, she doesn't. That's, that's the. That's, wow. That, yeah, that's the. That's and the and at some point, is Kibale got the face of a stone? Is that right? There's all kinds of because she's. I think because she's a mother goddess. Yeah. And every cult has, you know, every every everyone has a mother goddess. Yeah. She can kind of blur in very easily, and so lots of the statues of Kibale, you know, they're they're done by Greek sculptors, and so she looks like any Greek god. But there are also these much older traditions where she is associated just with stones or with totems yeah. or whatever. And the stories that are told about Kibale are very unlike Greek gods, really. There's there's a kind of strangeness to it. Um, so essentially there's, <laughs> there's this thing where she, before she becomes Kibale, she is hermaphroditic and she then, cuts off her testicles right hacks them off and we're back into the genital mutilation yeah we're gonna get throws them away in a second um these testicles then grow up to become a, a, a fruit tree um a river nymph takes the fruit puts it yeah. to her breast and becomes pregnant with this fruit gives love gives birth to um this beautiful youth who's given the name of Attis. Okay, yeah. Kibale then falls in love with Attis, who in a sense is her son. Where the product of her own testicles that have been turned into a tree. I've, I've yes. lost... I and may a have fruit, lost, yes. Yeah. Lost. Attis wants to marry someone. Kibale is jealous, turns up at the marriage. Yeah. Attis goes mad. Cuts off his testicles, <laughs> runs away from the altar, <laughs> and Kibale then basically keeps him in kind of suspended animation. So it's the worst wedding ever. That's, that makes the that makes the wedding from Game of Thrones look like a bad yeah, laugh. That's a cakewalk. <laughs> I mean, imagine if you're the bride and your your groom suddenly hacks off his testicles <laughs> and run, runs off with his mother. That didn't go. Like, that didn't go. It's, it's a terrible. It's a terrible, terrible business. Oh, um, my God. So you can see why the Romans are slightly <laughs> sniffy about it. 
Yeah, but then um, they adopt it. They're like, they're losing a war and they think, well, what's the obvious thing to do? Let's adopt this really mad well, I, Yeah, but, but but they're adopting this kind of stone element. They're not adopting all the weird shit that goes with yeah, but, it. Yeah, but then, am I not right in thinking that they do adopt the priests? And the priests, I mean, this is obviously why you chose it, because you love the subject of genital mutilation. The and, priests are and called transvestism. The- they, they're called the galley, aren't they? And they have this, yes. the day of the day of blood, as they call it. I'm never, 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 never a very appealing prospect. I think in a religious festival, the day of blood. Anyway, they have the day of blood. <laughs> Sorry, I know we shouldn't be laughing at our own podcast. Um, they wave this. <laughs> not funny i mean they're chopping off the testicles and i know they wave tambourines around they have a dance and, roam, and, then, and, they, and then they the mutilate streets. themselves <laughs> roaming the streets um and so they they spread um westwards to rome and the romans yeah. are very disapproving of this so the romans have adopted the cult of keyblade but they they they, they don't approve of these auto-castrating <laughs> cross-dressing priests um no and and seneca says something to the tune of um you know a, a a, a god a cult that that requires people to do this isn't a cult that's worth having it's not wrong to be fair i mean i think uh, well i yeah i, I mean i i, think I mean that. if it's that that i mean if you had the choice at the time of that or the cult of augustus I mean, what do you have to do in the cult of augustus or of course the cult of christ and yeah. in the long run it's it, it's the worship of christ that blots out the worship of kibale and Julian the Apostate is really the last significant figure who who's a big fan of Kibale. Is so he? the nephew of of uh, Constantine, um, brought up a Christian, repudiates Christianity, goes back to the worship of Kibale, um, and goes to the great shrine of Kibale, and is very disappointed to find that it's basically been abandoned. Um, and he 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 writes letters to the the priests of Kibale saying, uh, "Why aren't you handing out alms to the poor and doing charitable work?" And the reason for that is that priests of Kibale are too busy. Hacking off their testicles, and yes, yeah, roaming the streets dressed as women, um, and obviously the church doesn't really approve of that, and so it, it gets. I kind of think if we, out. If, if we had the World Cup now, with people having listened to this, <laughs> they might just, do better. Do a bit better. Anyway, from one very wacky god to another, the last god of this podcast, anyway, and then we'll do the others in the, in our follow up podcast. The other person who crashed out in the first round, of course, was Prince Philip huge disappointment to me and i know to you yes i was gutted that prince philip i thought prince philip would do well um he didn't he was beaten by dionysus wasn't he quite comfortably yeah. actually in but the end. dominic tell, tell us why we included prince philip well prince philip is or, or was worshipped he was worshipped on the island of tanna which is part of vanuatu uh, by the yaonan tribe um so this is what's called a cargo cult um, which probably a lot of our listeners will have heard of. So they mainly flourished in kind of Melanesia in the Pacific after the Second World War. And, I mean, the way to think of it is you have all these islands um, uh, where the sort of tribes are living un- often untouched, relatively untouched by the outside world. Uh, around about the period of the Second World War, obviously they're visited by lots of Japanese, American um, uh, soldiers who have a lot of stuff and and the stuff often gets left behind um, or the stuff washes up on beaches and you have what's called cargo cults. So the most famous one concerns a character called John Frum um, and some anthropologists think that John Frum means John from America or whatever. And, you know, people on the islands, not unreasonably thought 
you know, the these 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 visitors from another world have come with all this sort of incredible, baffling stuff, and one day they will come back and they will bring more stuff. And they are like visitors from another plane. They are like supernatural visitors. And so Hence Prince the, Philip is is and well, like Prince Philip he? went to Vanuatu in. Oh, the Queen went to Vanuatu, I think, in 1974. And you know how exactly the Prince Philip cult started is unclear. Um, it's probably connected with that visit in the 70s, though it might slightly predate it. If I am being very sceptical, I would say that the single biggest driver of this cult is the fact that every two years, people from the newspapers arrive in this village yeah. and say to these guys, can you please pose with a picture of Prince Philip? Yes. Well, amused readers <laughs> of the Daily Telegraph. And then... And um, documentaries they make, didn't they? They had a well, documentary about them. Brought Channel them 4 brought some of them to England. Um, yeah. and, and they sort met of, Prince Philip. And they met Prince Philip. Now, it may well be, if I'm being completely sceptical, that once the cameras were off and the doors were closed, the tribesmen said to Prince Philip, you know, we we're it. actually perfectly aware that you're not a god, uh, but we fancied the trip to London. I mean, I might be wrong. I might be being too too cynical. And actually, they may well, well believe it. So Prince Philip, there was, again, there was a lot of discussion about this uh, in the, the sports forums. Um, so there was a comment from Jeff Hannum. I, I wonder if Prince Philip has offended the other gods yet. Well, interesting yes. question. I mean, his, you wouldn't want his... to offend Chippy, would you? Um, no, but I think Prince Philip then, had seen Gareth, a lot in his life. I think he could right. cope with, you know, he'd he'd had an interesting life in himself. Maybe Kibale's more outlandish cult would be a bit much for him. So Gareth Arden makes exactly this point, talking about Prince Philip. Yeah. Seriously, he does have a, a good godlike backstory. He fled homeland during a perilous war. So like Aeneas, I suppose. Yeah. Married the queen. Her father became king after a dynastic squabble of a global empire. Chariot racer, sort of, because he... Yes, talked about this trapping time, right? or whatever yeah, it's called. Yeah. Um, uh, a great athlete, played cricket, marksman, shot pheasants, thrill seeker, crashed Land Rover. So, yeah. I mean, when 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 Prince Philip died, I I didn't really know very much about him. I just thought he was a kind of vaguely boring royal. But uh, he was definitely one of those people who, the more I read his obituaries, the more interesting I realised he was. Um, and I think he would make a good god. He and would. Think- he would make a brilliant deified Roman emperor, wouldn't he? He'd probably make yeah. a very good Roman emperor. I mean, he looked like could have. Kind of imperial. Well, the thing that Jeff Hannum's saying about has Prince Philip offended other gods? I mean, he that that kind of quality of the acerbic, I think, is you know an essential quality for a god because they can't just be. Yeah, he's not. You know, they've got to have a whiff of danger about them. So a god, I don't think has should have any consideration for sort of health and safety considerations no. or human resources. No, I, I would say or... that if there's a lesson to be drawn from our study of, of the gods in this World Cup, a concern with health and safety. Is not one of does not feature, <laughs> and so, I think that that's a good note on which yeah. to end this um, this 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 episode. The eight losers, and in our next episode, we're going to talk about the uh, the last eight, and we yes. will get through to the and reveal the champion for those of you who don't already know. So we will just see you on the next podcast. Cheerio, bye bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.